Okay, we are working our way through Hebrews. I'm having uh, a, a great time during the week preparing Sunday school lessons, uh, and I'll remind you what we're doing rather than me coming up with a, a really fancy outline and working through an outline uh, and you guys seeing the end product but not the work that went into it. Uh, what I'd rather do is engage in that work together, uh, let you see what it is that I've been doing this week, and, uh, and invite you to participate in that so that, uh, that increasingly you can feed yourself if you're not already capable of that. And so uh, the book of Hebrews is a great opportunity to do this. It's uh, exceedingly logical. Uh, it's, I, I tend to think of it as a sermon, uh, and it, it probably is intended to be read that way. And so we finished chapter one, we, uh, we've started chapter two, but this morning I think we'll probably spend most of our time right there in those first four verses again of chapter two, talking about apostasy and making sure we've understood these verses correctly. Let me pray for us and we'll get started with Hebrews chapter two. Father, thank you for time together to uh, consider your word, to wrestle together uh, over what it is that we find here, what it means for us, uh, the truth that we find and how that truth ought to uh, change us and impact the way we live day in and day out. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, above all things, what we would get from your word is the admonition we need, the hope that we need. Father, that you would feed us and equip us and sustain us until the day that Christ returns. We thank you for the letter to the Hebrews, for the truth that we find there, and the encouragement it is to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So uh, already, right out of the gate in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews, you, you'll remember, doesn't, he doesn't open with a typical letter opening. Uh, he doesn't say his name and then describe who he's addressing. You know, ordinarily, like Paul's letters, will open Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called for the sake of the Gentiles, to the saints who are at Ephesus. I'm kind of cobbling together different elements. I don't think it actually reads quite that way, right? Uh, you know, I always give, God, give thanks to God for you in all of my prayers, remembering, and he goes on to describe their faithfulness uh, before he gets into the meat of his letter. You don't get any of that from the author of Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews starts right out of the gate uh, with a, a powerful opening, and we've, we've spent a couple of weeks looking at those verses. His pattern is established immediately, and it's a pattern of contrast, right? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken by a son. So he's putting Christ in contrast to the Old Testament prophets. He's going to continue making contrasts throughout the rest of this letter, all the way up at least through chapter 10, uh, but even, even past chapter 10, there will be some of that, that that comes in. He's going to keep contrasting Christ with, with those ways in which God was revealing Christ in the Old Testament, all of which, in the, from the, the perspective of the author of Hebrews, all of which is in the context of the Mosaic Covenant. So all these things that he's saying Christ is better than uh, are things that are found in the Mosaic Covenant. And, uh, and that's where I want to come back this morning. Last week in the first four verses, uh, we, uh, there was a question about the every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And as I went back this week and looked more carefully at that and at these four verses, uh, one of the things that, that jumped out at me 
is in verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Uh, the, the question that rises from that sentence is much closer than what? Much closer than we have been? Uh, that would actually be a little out of place for the author of Hebrews, especially at this point in the letter, uh, to, to speak negatively of his recipients. Uh, in context, it's actually uh, preferable to understand that he's comparing his audience with the Israelites during the Exodus. We must pay much closer attention than they did. Some evidence for that comes from where he immediately goes. He says, we, uh, starting in verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, uh, and it's that message declared by angels that's the key here. Again, remember, it's all contrast. He's going back and forth between his audience and Moses. His audience and Moses. And when we read this message declared by angels, uh, it's actually, in, a, in its biblical context, a pretty clear reference to the giving of the law. You know, you might say, wait, time out. I don't remember any reference to angels in the narrative in Exodus of God giving the law uh, and, uh, and in the, the books of Moses there. But actually, as we continue through the text of Scripture from that point in the, uh, the Torah, in the law, we actually do uh, in fact, almost every other reference includes angels as intermediaries in the giving of the law. And so uh, you, uh, I'm just going to give you references. We won't take time to read them today. They're pretty straightforward. It, it doesn't require really high-speed, you know, super fancy interpretation. It's just right there uh, on the face of it. Acts 7.53 uh, refers to angels being involved in the giving of the law to Moses. Galatians 3.19 uh, is another place. So we've got Luke, the author of Acts, Paul, the author of Galatians. Uh, right there in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 33.2 also gives evidence of this. Uh, it was part of the, the Jewish tradition because of what is contained there in the Old Testament law that the angels were the intermediaries by which Moses received the law. So when the author of Hebrews says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the law of Moses. Uh, in the law of Moses, you not only had the law, rules, but you had both uh, a standard of righteousness and a means of atonement when you violated that standard of righteousness. Right? So you've got the two elements that we have throughout all of God's revelation and redemptive history. The truth that we have sinned against God and that judgment is, is on us. We are under God's wrath, but that God provides a means of escape from that wrath by atonement. And so we, we see all through the law of Moses, don't we? Uh, rules, and not only rules about what you should and should not do, but we see penalties. And that's what I think he's talking about when he says, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. We do have examples of that, uh, examples of the people breaking the law and then the penalty in the law of Moses being exacted against those lawbreakers. But probably what the author of Hebrews has in mind first is the law and its description 
of the penalties for breaking the law. Uh, the law itself shows us that every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution, the wrath of God and his judgment against sin. So that's the, that's the way we need to be reading these, these four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention than the Israelites did during the Exodus to what we've heard. Uh, notice there's even a parallel there. The people in Exodus uh, and, and through you know, Deuteronomy, they heard the law of God read to them, and they didn't pay attention to it. And because they didn't pay attention to it, they suffered the just retribution of God for their sins. We see that in particular instances uh, in the, the Exodus account and the conquest uh, with Achan, like I mentioned last week. Uh, we see the people grumbling and complaining, and the ground opens up and swallows people. Uh, there's the Israelite who, in the very middle of Moses and Aaron, telling the people that they're not to be marrying all these others around them, that, that one Israelite comes right up into the camp with a foreign woman, right? Uh, if you don't remember this story, then what I'm about to say may be shocking. Uh, the, the most righteous among the Israelites takes a spear, follows the two of them into the tent, and puts the spear through both of them right? Uh, the, the just retribution of God against sin. They didn't listen. They were told every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution, but they did not listen. And the author of Hebrews says, now we have heard, but not from angels. We've heard from Christ, the Son of God, the creator of all things. He has now spoken. We much pay, must pay much closer attention than the Israelites did to the angels because in the same sense that every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution, in that law, it does according to the message we've received from Christ. And therefore, this, it leads him to this, this consequence, this question, uh, which is really the central question in this section. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? They did not escape. They neglected the salvation of God. They neglected to believe and to do what was right and good, and therefore they did not escape. And we've heard a much better message, a much greater message, a much clearer message, and we've received it from the Son of God himself. If we neglect the gospel, how will we escape the wrath of God? Greek has this really wonderful feature where when it asks a question, grammatically, there are at least three and probably four different ways they can construct the question, grammatically speaking. And how they construct the question tells you whether the question expects a positive answer or a negative answer. This one expects a negative answer. That is... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Answer, you can't. Another way this could have been translated, it would have been a little looser, but it would have gotten the idea across more clearly, is if the translators had said here, you know you're not going to escape if you neglect such a great salvation, right? That's the force in the original language here of the question. And then to drive it home, after having described Christ as greater than the prophets and greater than the angels, 
And we talked last week about how so much of that language has to do with the word, the message, the act of speaking and hearing. As if it wasn't enough that it's the very Son of God and creator of the world who's declared the message. It's also been attested to us by those who heard. And God himself bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And that was both during Christ's earthly ministry and the apostolic age. And so we've got here a very stern warning to pay close attention to the gospel. Don't drift away from it. If you abandon the gospel, you abandon all hope of salvation. And that brings us to the subject of apostasy. So I'm going to pause there. Questions, observations? Nothing. Okay. All good? We'll move on. Apostasy, in, in my opinion, and maybe it's just my problem, but in my opinion, apostasy is one of the most difficult things for us to reckon with in the New Testament. Uh, because what we have on the one hand are the unambiguous promises of God that those who are being saved cannot be lost. Uh, what in theological terms we refer to as the perseverance of the saints. Uh, what is unfortunately sometimes in popular theology uh, expressed as once saved, always saved, uh, which I would suggest to you is an unhelpful way of saying it or thinking about it and should probably just be cut right out of your theological vocabulary. Not because there's not a truth in it, there is, uh, but there's also some misleading elements to that, that statement. What we have is the, the testimony in Scripture that God is faithful to keep his promises. And he has accomplished all that is necessary for salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and he holds that work out to those who will believe and repent. And those who are believing and repenting are saved and cannot be lost. There's an objective truth here. And, it, and we're told these things for our comfort. And I use comfort in a, maybe a, a bit of an archaic sense there. Uh, I, I'm using it the way you would use it today uh, to describe sitting with someone who just lost a loved one, for example. I don't mean like lazy boy comfort, right? Uh, there's a difference. Uh, it's, it's for our good that God makes these promises to us and assures us that he's faithful to keep these promises. But we also know that in the visible church, there are those who outwardly look and sound as though they belong, but in the end, they don't. And it's, it's not a, a work that we are typically engaged in to go through the congregation and be trying to spot the weeds and pull them out. Uh, there's some disagreement about how best to translate uh, Christ's um, parable. Uh, I, I tend to go the direction of understanding it, particularly as the visible church, and that is that uh, the servants come to the master and say, hey, didn't you plant good seed? Why is the field full of weeds? Uh, and the master says that the enemy has snuck in and planted those weeds, and the servants say, do you want us to go pull all the weeds? 
He says, no, you don't go pull all the weeds now. Uh, you'll, you'll pull up some of the good stuff. We're just going to harvest all of it at the end, and we'll burn the bad stuff then, right? The church has, uh, to use the old hymn language, in her pale, those who are, are trusting Christ and repenting of their sins, and those who are not. And the New Testament then holds out to those who are believing and repenting the hope and the promise of the salvation of God. But to combat the presumption of those who might mistakenly believe that because they, they come to a particular location on Sunday and they say a particular set of words, that they somehow have, have an interest in these promises, the New Testament is constantly, and it's all the authors. You, you, can't, you can't quarantine this with Paul or the author of Hebrews or John. All of them talk this way. They say to a faithful, visible community of believers, be careful. Don't drift away. Pay attention. Continue in the faith. And the promise is all of those who continue in the faith will be saved. These warnings, and, I, and we're, I'm, I'm taking time intentionally with these verses today because this is the first of six passages in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews is going to issue warnings to the, the people he's writing to. These warnings are not intended to dash the confidence of the true believer, to, to strip you of your um, uh, assurance of salvation. Uh, it's there, these warnings are there in Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament to combat the presumption of those who aren't actually believing. Uh, I meant to bring a copy of the standards today. I've got it on my phone. Um, the standards are probably the best place to go. Uh, and for those of you who, who may be visiting or aren't Presbyterian, which is okay, um, when I say standards, I mean the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism. Uh, and I reorganized all the apps on my phone, so I'm having to find, there it is. So in the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in uh, chapters, uh, I think it's 17 and 18, having to go back and confirm. Uh, yeah, 17 and 18, and chapter 17 is the perseverance of the saints, and chapter 18 is the assurance of grace and salvation. I would encourage you to read these. Uh, read them this afternoon. If you don't get to them this afternoon, read them this week. Uh, chapters 17 and 18 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They're not long chapters at all. It, you, you can read both of them uh, in one sitting in two minutes, maybe. They're really brief. Uh, I'm going to actually go ahead and read them to you now. We're not going to do a whole study of them, as tempting as that is. But I, I want you to... Let's try and get a 10,000-foot view, right? This is on the perseverance of the saints. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability, that is the unchanging character, of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, 
upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility of this perseverance. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. The perseverance of the saints doesn't mean that you'll never sin. It doesn't mean that you'll never sin grievously. It doesn't mean that your sin uh, won't impact others. But what it means is that you will always return to Christ in repentance. Those who are being saved by God will be finally and infallibly saved. If we look at uh, the next chapter then, Assurance is something different than perseverance. Perseverance is a statement of the objective truth that those who are being saved by God will be saved by God. And that that salvation doesn't depend on your free will. It depends upon God, His promises, His faithfulness, the finished work of Christ, the, the, the Spirit that lives in us that will not ever abandon us, right? All objective realities. But we have a subjective knowledge of these things, and that's where assurance comes in. It says, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. This certainly is not a bare conjectural or probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, this is a, probably one of the most important paragraphs in these two chapters. This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of ordinary means, we talk about the ordinary means all the time, right? In the right use of ordinary means, attained thereunto, that is, get that assurance, 
And therefore, it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. Assurance, if, if assurance for you gives you liberty to sin, then that's not gospel assurance. It's not biblical assurance. That's presumption. Our assurance is never rooted in the fact that it's okay if we sin, right? And if that's where assurance, if, if your belief that you're being saved, what that means to you is that you're free to go sin, that's not the fruit of gospel assurance. The last paragraph, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation in many different ways shaken, diminished, and interrupted, as by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. We're going to come back to that. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Our sin can shake our assurance. If you're struggling with assurance, if you're struggling with the, the question of whether or not you belong to Christ, uh, there's, there's several different things that the Scripture calls us to. One is to keep believing the promises of God and His faithfulness to keep those promises. One of the, the sort of diagnostic questions I'll ask somebody when they come to me and they're struggling with assurance is, are you believing the gospel? Are you trusting Christ? Are you repenting of your sins? Is there a conflict inside of you? And often there is, because usually sin is what causes that lack of assurance. And they're, they're coming to me grieving and hating their sin so much that they wonder how they could possibly be saved, right? And so the question is, are you believing the gospel? Are you repenting of your sins? These are fruits. These are evidences, right? Uh, but often... If we have sin, unrepented sin, God will withdraw our assurance, our knowledge of and confidence in that perseverance of the saints, particularly our interest in that perseverance. Do we belong to Christ? God will withhold that from us as a means of drawing us back. But sometimes, the confession says, even when we're, we're not guilty of unrepentant sin, for reasons that are perhaps known only to God, he will for a season withdraw our sense of assurance. He will take that from us. And so one of the things that we've got to keep doing uh, from a subjective perspective uh, with assurance and when we struggle with assurance, we've got to keep believing and repenting. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that most of you have probably thought to yourself or you've heard somebody else say something like this out loud is in, in the midst of a struggle with assurance, 
acknowledging that if these things aren't true, you're lost, right? That is, if the gospel's not true, we have no hope. Even if I, I were to arrive at heaven's gate and God was to say to me, you are not mine, there's nothing else I could have done, right? But let's, let's flip that around. The promise is that those who believe and repent will be saved. Again, I want to come back to the fact that, that the intention in the warning passages is not to shake your assurance. It's to combat the presumption of those who are not actually believing the gospel. And I think if we stop for a second and we, we set aside some of the deeper introspection and we think about people we know in our culture, people who identify as Christians, people who may be inside of a building that calls itself a church every Sunday, but you know what they believe and they don't believe the gospel. That's the kind of presumption that the, God, that the, the New Testament writers are combating with these warnings, right? They're, they're not calling the people to whom they're writing, to do anything other than continuing to believe and repent. What does he say here? Look at the the root of the warning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What's the author of Hebrews want us to do? He wants us to keep focusing on the gospel and believing that gospel, right? That's what he's calling us to, because that's the message we've heard. That's the message that Christ preached, And so, having preached that message and him being the greatest messenger that could possibly have been sent to us and infinitely reliable, we are bound then to, to, in in hearing that gospel, pay attention to it. And what does the gospel require of us? It requires faith and repentance, right? So, that's what the warnings are about. Certainly what this warning is about questions or observations, surely after all the things I just said, you guys aren't going to sit there with nothing. Billy. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I do. I do agree with that. It's, it's an encouragement. It's not just a warning to pay closer attention. It's an encouragement uh, to pay closer attention, an encouragement to cling to the gospel uh, and the promises that are ours in that gospel. I was talking to a friend this week as I was thinking through this, and um, at one point we were texting, and I'm going to quote him. His name's Jason Halopoulos. He's a PCA pastor up in Michigan. Uh, And he said it this way, and I thought it was helpful, so I just decided I was going to quote him. Warnings are not given, or warnings are given, not to unsettle the Christian, that is the true Christian, the one who's actually believing and repenting, but to unsettle the false or fake Christian. Peace is given on one end by assurance, and presumption is combated on the other by the warnings. So hopefully that's a helpful way to think about not only this warning, but the warnings in Hebrews and throughout the New Testament. Other comments, questions, Graham? Yeah, if you don't mind, what is, what is the biblical proof for 
I, I certainly think that that would be a, a significant basis uh, for making such a claim. Yeah. Um, if anybody had reason to lack assurance, it w would have been Job. All the terrible things happening to him and all of his friends telling him it was because he was a sinner. Uh, but we have Job's testimony and God's testimony that Job was, was not being punished for sin. Um, we, the reader, know what's happening to Job. But Job actually never finds out, not in the book. Uh, he's never told how the book opened. Um, and so, yeah, certainly I think we, we see a lot uh, that's instructive along those lines in Job. So. Could it also be considered one of the, the methods of God convicting you of, of something in your life uh, of a believer to bring you back? Sometimes he makes it very evident. Sometimes he really touches your heart. Sometimes it's there. And, you know, to, to start doubting your salvation is pretty scary for a believer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, sometimes God takes away uh, that assurance because you have sin that needs to be repented. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the, the Puritans who uh, wrote the, the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms uh, talked about the dark night of the soul. Um, and they weren't the first ones to come up with that kind of language. But w one of the, the takeaways here, and this, the author of Hebrews is not really getting at this directly, but it, it comes up in the, the discussion of apostasy and assurance uh, and perseverance is that you need to hear that there are times, like uh, the way the, that the confession just said it and I, when I read it, and I'll, I'll update the language a bit, but that assurance is not so connected to the objective reality of your salvation that you, you only have assurance when you're saved and you never have assurance when you're not saved, right? It's possible to be saved and not have assurance. And some people don't come into that assurance immediately. And some people will lose that assurance at some point and get it back. And why do they lose it? And that's what they go on to describe. Sometimes it's because God is trying to get your attention because there's sin in your life. And you're, you're tripping along happily, full of assurance and unrepentant. And God, to get your attention, takes that assurance away and you kind of realize, wait a minute, right? You, you suddenly don't have that confidence. You don't have that comfort that comes with assurance. And you begin asking yourself, well, what's wrong? And suddenly you're aware of this unrepentant sin, or you're aware of the effect of that unrepentant sin. You've known about the sin maybe and not been repentant, but you had this comfort and God takes that comfort from you. And you repent, right? You come back, you turn away, from those things and assurance is restored. Sometimes though, he takes it because he's doing something else entirely. It's not because he's getting your attention for sin. Uh, and this I think is, uh, whether it's for, it's to get your attention for sin that's unrepented, that maybe you've n you're not even really paying attention. You, you, I mean, maybe if it's brought to your attention, you suddenly go, well, of course, yeah, right? But until then, you're just kind of, indifferent, you're just doing your thing. Or maybe it's not for sin at all, 
The reality is that it is possible for you to be in Christ and for the objective truth to be that you will persevere to the end, but for you to lose that assurance. And one of the things that, that we, I see in ministry uh, is that sometimes when somebody doesn't have that assurance, they will even leave the faith. Now, maybe that's because they never should have had any assurance in the first place. Maybe they aren't believers. But often what, what I actually observe in ministry is they are believers, but when they lose the assurance, they get angry with God. Uh, they begin to doubt. If they're not saved, if they don't have a sense of that salvation, a sense of, of, of the, the, the grace and mercy of God towards them, then they reject the whole system, and they just walk away. Now, again, we know because of the doctrine of perseverance, because of what Scripture says about those that God is saving, we know that if they are in Christ, they will come back. But it's frustrating for the Christian. It's scary to lose your assurance. And sometimes it, it results in anger towards God, especially if you feel like you've had that assurance before, right? Uh, you, and, and especially if you can't figure out why you've lost it. You stop and you consider your life and you, you say, yeah, of course I'm not perfect, but where I'm aware of sin, I'm repenting of it. Why have I lost my assurance? And it's important to understand that the subjective experience of assurance can be taken away by God for any reason. It's always for a good reason. God always does what is right. But our experience of it is not always pleasant and it can be a real struggle. It's important that uh, especially younger Christians or less mature Christians, it's particularly important that you hear that message because if, you're, if your faith is a fledgling faith and you've not yet experienced the assurance of salvation or you've had a wonderful experience of that assurance and the first time you don't have that assurance, it can be extremely disorienting, very scary, and can result in you even questioning not just your own interest in Christ, but whether or not this whole thing is even true. It can be very difficult. Though God can, and, and by evidence has, taken away the assurance of people, uh, not because of sin, uh, the reality seems to be, based on both the word and our experience, that that's not common, at least not taken as a whole. Uh, the author of Hebrews here is encouraging us to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Every experience of loss of assurance ought to drive us to Christ. That, that ought to be what happens. If, if it's because we've sinned, it ought to drive us to, to Christ in repentance if it's for any other reason, we ought to be clinging to Christ like the mast of the ship in a storm and trusting that God will deliver us through it. Liz. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so good, Liz. Thanks for saying those things. Um, I, I want to spend some time on those. Um, <clears throat> so one of the, the early heresies in the church was a heresy called Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism had a lot of crazy ideas, but one of the things that, that we remember Gnosticism for was its duality, that it, it said that physical things were evil, spiritual things were good. Uh, we sin because we're trapped in a physical body, Salvation requires us to die and be released from this physical body because the spiritual is good, the physical is bad. Uh, and again, we can go on and on about all the other crazy things they believed and, and how some of what I just said is tied to those things. But we're not Gnostic. Uh, we don't believe in the, the dichotomy of body and soul, the radical dichotomy of these things. The resurrection insists that we are body and soul. When you die, your body will go into the ground and your soul will go to be with Christ, but you're not done. There is a day coming when Christ will return and all who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. Your body will be made new and your, your body and soul will be restored to one another in unity and wholeness and that is the you that will spend an eternity with Christ. And that has implications. That truth has implications for today. One of them being that illness can actually affect us spiritually. Physical illness can affect us spiritually. The Puritans were geniuses when it came to the human person and how we're constructed and how this works. And one of the things that, uh, that John Owen, and he's not the only one, they all love to do this, but Owen is probably most famous for it, is saying, uh, making lists, and uh, one of the lists is, uh, these are the times when you are most vulnerable to Satan and sin. When you've just met spiritual success. When you've just met spiritual failure. When you've been physically ill. Right? Uh, the, the Puritans recognized that being physically sick, having the flu, can actually affect you spiritually, can lead you into a depression. And in that depression... A, a season of, of wondering if God is there and if he loves you, right? Uh, the Psalms I, are, are brilliant in this respect, and uh, most of the time you hear in the psalmist's voice that sense of where are you, right? The, the most famous refrain in these various psalms is how long? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? The psalmist isn't writing a, 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 a hit for the pop charts. Right? This is a record of his, him pouring his soul out to God. And he means it. Where are you? This is someone who lacks assurance right now. Where are you? Why are my enemies just wearing me out? And you just look on and you do nothing. And most of the time, the psalmist will wrap up with a statement of confidence. But in Psalm 88, he doesn't. He cries out, where are you? Why are you letting this happen? I don't understand this. I don't know where you are. I don't know why you're letting this happen. And the psalm ends. And the only evidence we have that the psalmist continues faithful, even as he says these things, is that he's pouring that out to God. And that, that gets at what I was trying to say a few minutes ago, that there's a sense in which if none of this is true, we've got nowhere else to go. 
The psalmist doesn't know where God is. He doesn't understand why God's letting this happen. He is in despair. He lacks assurance. He, he can't understand why God would let this happen to his beloved. And the voice, you shouldn't read the psalms in the voice of a random Israelite. The psalms ought to be read in the voice of Jesus Christ. And in the original author, the king, David. It's not just any Israelite pouring out his soul to God. It's David who is in covenant with God and as such anticipates Jesus Christ who cries out from the cross. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Christ experienced this. And so it would be a bit silly, wouldn't it, to think that we're immune? And yet Christ addresses that to the Father. The psalmist addresses these things to God over and over again. And that's how we meet a lack of assurance. Yes, we, we, we ask ourselves, am I, am I feeling cold because I'm caught up in some sin that I know I shouldn't be involved in? That is going to drive a wedge between you and God. Repent and come back to God in obedience. Be grieved by this and broken by it. But if you can't figure out why it is, cling to Christ anyways. This, this is whatever else God is doing when he takes assurance away from you, he is always bringing you back to himself. There's nowhere else to go. Where will you go if you believe God has abandoned you? There is nowhere else to go. We've got to be anchored in Christ, no matter what. No matter what we feel, no matter what's happening and, and how confusing it is and we don't understand it, there is no other hope. And though we don't understand it often, part of our hope is not only that he will get us through it, but that he's allowing it for a purpose, that he always does things for a reason, and his reasons are always perfect. That's the nature of faith, isn't it? I mean, everybody would believe, wouldn't they? If you heard the gospel and believed it, and suddenly you lived in a 5,000-square-foot house that was paid for in the best part of town, drove the nicest cars, had a job that didn't require you to do any work, but the paycheck kept coming anyways, right? Had only people around you who loved and adored you and never did anything to sin against you. If that's what it meant to believe the gospel, everybody would do it. They'd look at us and they'd be like, yeah, give me some of that. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's faith. Right? The things promised to Abraham, he didn't see those things. The things promised to Moses, Moses walked away from the, the riches of Egypt, preferring Christ over those things. But Moses didn't see Christ, not in his lifetime. Right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's a sense in which faith is never more real and more important than when we don't have assurance. Because that's, that's when it's the hardest. That's when we feel our faith viscerally, right? When we have to turn to God and say, I don't have any idea what you're doing, 
I don't even know if you're there. I don't even know if you're hearing me. But I've got nowhere else to go. You're my only hope. I'm not going anywhere else. It's so important for us as Christians to learn that lesson. 150 psalms, and most of them touch on this at some point. Psalms are full of the psalmist crying out. And so that's David's experience. It's Christ's experience. Uh, and both are models for us, and we should not expect to, to miss that experience in our lives either. Okay. Oh, look at that. We're done. Uh, okay. If you've got questions on the first four verses, email me this week, because next week we're going to pick up with verse 5 and keep moving. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this Sabbath rest that you give us today. We thank you for the promises in your word. We thank you that you teach us that there are times when we are going to feel as though you are not there. And you tell us that though that may be our experience and you may even be pulling us into that experience, that you are nonetheless there and there's nowhere else to go and that we can trust you, that you will get us through it, that it will be for our good. And so, Father, I pray for all of us. I pray for those who aren't with us right now, who have walked away from the faith, who themselves felt like, God, you were not meeting their needs. I pray that if we ever try to turn to anything else in order to find hope, that we would find those hopes crushed mercilessly and rapidly, Father. that you would restore our hope in you. Father, that we would cling to Christ and him alone no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Father, for those who are experiencing this right now, Father, I pray that you would make yourself known to them. Make your presence known. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that they would know that you were there. That they would see evidences of your grace and your mercy and your love all around them, Father. That your spirit would testify to their spirit that they are sons and daughters. Father, we thank you that you have promised to keep us until the day that Christ returns. And so we're, we're resting in that. It's our only hope, and we rejoice that that hope is anchored in Jesus Christ who will not disappoint. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.